love you all. Welcome to the show. Oh, I just realized I don't have a drink next to me. Fail. Giant fail. Already feeling parched. No drink next to me. Um, so, got a great show for you today. A lot of stories for you today. Um, Joe Biden might finish Trump's wall. We're going to lead with that. I got Matt Gates updates. I got Joe Manchin stuff. I got Mitch McConnell stuff. I got Bernie getting grilled by Mehdi Hassan. I got Josh Hawley out being outed as a fraud. I got celebrities running for president. I got all sorts of shit. You don't want to miss any of it. CIA even makes it into today's show. Um, but I will. what I'll do for y'all is give you a little bit of a, an exclusive here, only for the live show listeners. This won't be on YouTube, um, at least not for a few days. I might record something on this you know, tomorrow or the day after or whatever in a separate video. But for you guys, I'll let you know. I'll give you the update on uh, the vaccine I got. So I got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, which is the one-and-done shot. You don't need two shots. You just need one. Um, the other vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer, are mRNA vaccines, which is new technology. Um, the Johnson & Johnson one is actually the old – it's the old way of doing a vaccine, the traditional way of doing the vaccine, where you have, like, a dead virus that they inject in you. And um, so there's been a little bit of misinformation out there about this vaccine because – the numbers that the media was reporting is that, like, the Johnson and jo- excuse me, the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are like 95% effective, and they say the Johnson and Johnson one is 66% effective, and so people are getting, um, people don't really know exactly what that means because when you dig a little deeper, you find out very quickly that protection against hospitalization and deaths, which really is like, in my opinion, the key metric as to whether or not the vaccine works, how effective it is, it's 100% for every single vaccine. So in other words, nobody who's ever gotten the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, none of them have been hospitalized, none of them have died. So like you could still get COVID and you might have like mild symptoms, but you're not going to be hospitalized and you're not going to die and you're probably going to recover a little faster. Uh, And the other point that people made that I didn't know until recently is that apparently the Pfizer and the Moderna trials were happening at a time when COVID wasn't peaking as much, the trial for the Johnson & Johnson happened when COVID was peaking. And they also studied it in Brazil where there was a new variant. And um, basically the, the point I'm making is that apparently if you were to study all three of those vaccines at the exact same time, the results would have been almost identical. Um, but instead, the Johnson & Johnson one was tested at a harsher time. Uh, so it appeared like it was less effective, but again, that's just from getting COVID. Hospitalizations and deaths are, are, they're all 100% effective. So anyway, this is a long way of me saying, so I got the vaccine. Um, I had three people in my family working 24-7 around the clock trying to get me an appointment. They would repeatedly go on all the different websites that the government says to go on to try to, you know, put in the information and fill it out. They want your insurance card. They want, they want a couple things. Um, and eventually it was my mother who was able to get me the appointment. I had to drive maybe 10 or 15 minutes to a, a nearby CVS and uh, checked in on my phone. I had to wait maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I was on a line. So I was originally scheduled to have the vaccine at 3 o'clock. They actually took me at like 3.30. Um, and they gave me the shot. They make you wait 15 minutes to make sure there's no you know, immediate allergic reaction or anything like that. I was fine. I left. Now, I didn't feel any symptoms at all the rest of the day. 
And with most people, they say after like maybe eight hours or 12 hours, you'll start to feel something. I didn't feel anything. I felt nothing. I went to bed, woke up the next day, felt 100%. Um, then it was like the second half of yesterday, I had a little bit of a headache and I felt a little bit hot, a little fevery. Um, but that only lasted like three hours. Then the headache went away, the feveriness went away, and now I'm 100% again. And so very, very, very mild vaccine symptoms. And they say it's, it, I got to wait like two weeks before I'm fully protected from it. But it appears like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm now vaccinated. I'm now over the hump of whatever symptoms I was going to feel. So feels good, man. So I highly recommend everybody go out there and do it. I feel bad for anybody who has to get the Pfizer and the Moderna, to be honest, just because you have to do two shots instead of one. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Your boy is vaccinated, and it does feel good. It does feel like a little bit of a relief. You've been worried about this thing, and if you get it, you might die. And then now it's like, hey, if I get it, I'm not going to die. So anyway, uh, all right, let's jump right into it. I'll give you – I already gave you a little bit of tease. Let's, uh, let's start with Joe Biden. So Joe Biden uh, is doing perhaps the most Joe Biden thing of all time or considering doing the most Joe Biden thing of all time. Take a look at this. Breaking, Biden's DHS may restart construction on the U.S.-Mexico border wall to fill any gaps in the current barrier, says DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This is something that they're considering behind the scenes. They're considering doing more of Trump's border wall. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. Somebody tweeted, Biden is a Donald Trump Democrat. That's sort of what it looks like, right? Now, listen, I don't know. The way it's worded, it makes me think they're saying there are gaps where the wall has been built already, and they just want to fill in those gaps, but they don't want to complete the entire thing. That's the way I'm interpreting it. Um, but either way, I mean, totally Trumpian, Ryan Grimm made the point, okay, if you don't want any gaps in the wall, tear down the entire wall. So, but here's the point, guys. Virtually everybody who was screaming at the top of their lungs, and they're part of the resistance crowd, they said this wall is immoral, it's unethical, it's un-American, it's racist, it's bigoted. They ain't going to say, Dickie McGeezax, now that it's Biden who's considering filling in the gaps in the wall. Not going to say anything. In the same way that, you know, all of a sudden, the people who were crying about kids in cages, when Biden's putting the kids in cages, they're like, I don't even know what happened. What, 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 what were you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. I see them, but they're trying to do the best they can, and they've got to do whatever they've got to do. And if you don't understand that that's what, I mean, what do you want them to do? There's uh, got to be things that they've got to fix, and they're going to get to it, and they're doing the best that they can. In the same way, they had Democrats who, and to be fair, Republicans, the, they flipped also. All of a sudden, Sean Hannity is pretending to care about human rights at the border and kids in cages. It's ridiculous. But, I mean, this is too perfect a story because of the immense hypocrisy that's going to be on display, if not is already on display. And it's also, it just, it perfectly illustrates the point that we've made about Biden and his entire career this entire time, which is he really is a moderate Republican. You know, I, I think you can make an argument that the moderate Republican positions keep up the Trump wall and fill in the gaps, but don't complete the entire wall to build the rest of it, 
right? Like there's so much more that has to be built. He's not going to do all that, but he will fill in the gaps of the part of the wall that's already built. You know what I mean? That strikes me as like the moderate Republican position. And you go through his record and it has this stuff all over it. By the way, this isn't the first time he's flirted with the wall. There's a famous clip of him. I don't know how long ago it was. Maybe it was in the 1990s or early 2000s or something. But he basically says we need a barrier. So not a wall, a barrier or a fence. He said one of those two things, you barrier or fence. I think Hillary said the same thing. You know, this is who they are, guys. This is who they are. It, the corporate Democrats, the so-called centrist Democrats, Biden is one of them, they're, they supported the Patriot Act. They supported the Iraq War. They supported a number of outsourcing deals. Biden bragged about wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare and do a grand bargain. He, he was in line with a lot of the deficit hawkery that the right-wingers do. I mean, this is who he is, you know? So I think that says everything. It says everything about what he does in reality versus the perception of him. You have this perception from the Republicans that he's, you know, Bernie Sanders or to the left of Bernie Sanders. He's some sort of hardcore socialist or, or social Democrat. That's preposterous. Um, but then you also have, people on the Democratic team who thought he was going to swoop in and save the day and be the next FDR, which is absurd. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. He was, never, he was always going to do a half measure on top of the half measure. He was always going to water everything down massively and then pretend like that's a bold position and then get clunked over the head more in negotiations with Republicans or the even more conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin and give us, you know, tiny little tweaks around the edges and incremental change. And this is a great example of it right here. So it'll be interesting to see more of their reaction. It'll be interesting to see if he actually goes through with it, because now I don't – actually, I don't – I was going to say there's noise around this, but I don't know how much noise around this there is. I'm going to talk about it. Other lefty hosts are going to talk about it. You know, maybe some left-wing groups will write a letter or some shit. But our – Actual Democratic politicians and Democrats in the media, are they going to be outraged by this and push them on this? I don't think they're going to say anything. I think when Biden does a Trump policy, all of a sudden, you know, those sorts of Democrats just pretend like it's awesome and it's necessary. And what are we supposed to do? I think the New York Times just had an article like, Biden finished the wall before the next Trump does it. So, see, this, this is how, how they are. Like, the media was never against Trump for policy reasons. They were against Trump because they don't like Trump and the personality and the mean tweets and the bravado. That's the thing that they don't like. It had nothing to ever do with policy. You know, the media doesn't care if you cut taxes for the wealthy and deregulate or build a wall. That's why they're begging Biden to do the Trump things, and they're going to like it now when Biden does it. See, this is what I mean. It's totally, it's not substantive at all. It's not even close to substantive. So... I don't know. I don't know if he's actually going to follow through with it because it does seem incredibly egregious. I mean, this would be so arrogant. But I don't know if he's going to follow through with it, but, you know, my prediction is you're going to have the resistance types, the hardcore Democrat types are going to support it. They're either going to support it or say nothing. So that's going to happen. And then it'll be interesting to see the Republican response. It'll be hilarious because, you know, if, if the trends hold true – all of a sudden they'll be against the wall. 
I'll be like, Biden's for it. So this must be bad and socialist or something. So now I'm against it. Now I'm against it. Or they'll just, you know, they'll just call out the media hypocrisy and the Democratic Party hypocrisy and say, hey, wait a second, you guys said this was racist and now he's doing it and now it's okay. So, I mean, again, it's just too perfect a story. You couldn't make the point in a, a clearer way than this, that Joe Biden is a moderate Republican. And if, if the mountain of evidence that points in that direction doesn't sway you, then you're not swayable. Okay. Oh, God, Matt Gates update. You freaks love this shit, don't you? You freaks love this Matt Gates shit. Weirdos. So I have another update on the creepy Matt Gates story. I take no pleasure in talking about any of this. Kyle Griffin says, breaking from the New York Times, in the final weeks of Trump's term, Matt Gates privately asked the White House for blanket preemptive pardons for himself and unidentified congressional allies for any crimes they may have committed. Come on, son. Okay. Guilty. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Strike one, you're out. There ain't no two and three, dog. Strike one, you're out. You know who does that? You know who goes and begs the president for a pardon preemptively? A blanket pardon? Somebody who did it. Somebody who knows that they're guilty and they're trying to get ahead of it. So I don't, like, now whatever they accused him of, I think he's guilty. I think the most hyperbolic, vituperative explanations as to what he was doing, I think that's all probably true. So, you know, you guys know the details. I don't want to run through them again, but they are what they are. Apparently, he's being investigated by the Department of Justice for child sex trafficking because he allegedly was dating a 17-year-old and flying her around the country and putting her up in hotel rooms. And he was apparently also using Cash App and Apple Pay to pay for sex, maybe with that 17-year-old, but also they had orgies. And it would be him. There was this tax collector in Florida um, who's now in prison, who he partied with all the time. Apparently, there's other people in Congress. I fucking, I told you. I told you. Him and his congressional allies. I told you. What did I say in the last segment? I was like, if he doesn't go down, the reason he doesn't go down is because homeboy knows where all the bodies are buried. He knows this Tennessee congressperson likes to put cactuses in his asshole. This, you know, this one from whatever, fill in the blank. This one from Arizona. Woo, you want to stay away from that dude. That dude's out of his mind. This one right here loves to have, you know, closed pins on his nipples and twist it. And he goes, oh, oh, I love this. He knows everything. He runs in these elite circles on some Jeffrey Epstein-style shit where they got some creepy-ass club where they all get together in the middle of COVID They're wearing, like, you know, they're covering their face with those top masks, but nobody's covering the nose part, you know, and they're doing some kinky-ass shit. They're paying underage women, having sex with them, having orgies. That's statutory rape, by the way, you know, and they got caught. So, again, he's going to go down, but if he didn't go down, the reason why he wouldn't is because you have other people in this freaky-ass, kinky-ass elite sex ring who are also guilty and they would do anything they can to protect, protect one to protect all, 
because he knows where the body's buried. He can start machine gunning in every direction. I know what you did. I know what you did. I know what y'all did. If I go down, everybody's going down with me. He could pull one of those, right? He could pull one of those. But it says it was him. We know it was the tax collector from Florida because he's already in jail. And unidentified congressional allies went to Trump and they were like, please, we need a blanket pardon. But I totally didn't do anything wrong. But blanket pardon, please. Totally didn't do anything wrong at all. But you have to make sure that you get me off. Ooh, (laughs) no pun intended. Not the phrasing I should have used in the context of this segment. Never talk about getting Matt Gates off ever again, any of you, disgusting. So um, there you have it. Matt Gates is incredibly creepy. And again, the main takeaway from this is that nothing has really solidified this notion in my mind that like all the things about Epstein are totally true. All that stuff. Epstein was, you know, partying with wealthy, famous people, politicians, academics. Like, he had this who's who of powerful people, and he would get dirt on all of them. By the way, there's, there's rumors that perhaps Epstein was like Israeli intelligence, and so he had dirt on all these American politicians and all these American academics and all these famous people, and that could be used against them. So what this tells me is, yeah, this shit is widespread, son. This is not like a one-off Again, with the things that sound inadvertently sexual. <laughs> Don't say that. This is not like a thing that happened randomly and, uh, and it's a one-time thing and that's it. No, there's, these assholes got a whole squad. So many of the creepy elites are into this shit. And all the Epstein stuff is true. This is Matt Gates doing some Epstein-type shit. Because, yeah, I mean, somebody made the point to me. This is... Um, was it Crystal who said it on Crystal Kyle and Friends, or was it June Chuanhead who said it? Somebody was like, this is the way it worked with Epstein, too. Like, he would have somebody come massage him at his place, and it would be a young girl, and he would tell them to get your friends, and we'll pay them. And so they would get, you know, impressionable 16-year-olds with troubled backgrounds, and they would end up, basically, he would end up using them, and then they would get other friends. And next thing you know, you got a group of, like, 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds from broken homes who are getting paid to do all sorts of kinky shit. And that's child sex slavery. That's what it is, right? That's one of the ways in which it manifests. And so this is what Matt Gates was doing. So they're talking about potentially life in prison for him. I don't know if he's going to get that much, but that's in the conversation. That's on the table. You have some Florida prosecutors who were saying that. I do think he's probably going to go to jail, jail. But again, if he doesn't, it's because he knows where all the bodies are buried and they're all going to protect each other. So we'll see, but... The update is he's begging Trump for a preemptive pardon. You want to know why? Because he knows he did it. Okay. All right, next, y'all. Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin has to insert himself into every single policy story in the Biden era. So take a look at this. This is from Bloomberg. They say, Biden's $2.25 trillion economic plan ran into trouble Monday after Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, demanded changes to its tax provisions in order to secure his crucial support. And then you see at the bottom there, it says, 
Manchin balks at Biden's corporate tax increase favors 25% rate. So let me walk you through this. In 2016, the nominal corporate tax rate was 35%. 2017, Trump passes his tax cut law. It cuts the corporate tax rate from 35% all the way down to 21%. Biden comes in now and he says, this is crazy. You cut taxes massively for corporations. I'm not in favor of that. We'll do 28%. Okay, so in other words, he's not even going back to the 2016 rate, the nominal 2016 rate. He's saying, well, flip the difference and we'll do 28%. And then Joe Manchin is like, I don't even agree with 28%. We'll do 25%. Again, this is a perfect story because it shows you exactly how corporate Democrats function. This is exactly how they function. They compromise up front. They give everything away up front. And then they're forced to give away further because Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema or any of the further right Democrats like, no, I don't even agree with that. And then it's even possibly the case that some Republicans chime in and they reduce it even more. So you'll end up going from like 21% corporate tax rate to 23% corporate tax rate. When again, in 2016, it was 35%. So this is what you get. This, you with corporate Democrats, you just get tweaks around the edges. That's all you get. You get incrementalism from now until the end of time. You get no real fundamental systemic change. And by the way, there is no like, it's not like Joe Manchin sat down and did some you know, high-level equation and looked at the numbers and did the math and said, well, 28 makes no sense for reasons X, Y, and Z. So what I need, I, I did the calculations and found out that 25% is actually the ideal corporate tax rate number. No, there's none of that going on. He just wants to assert himself to scream to the voters in West Virginia, I, I'm not like the other Democrats. I know, that every, I know that West Virginia went for Trump by a wide margin, but you guys like me, right? And here, I'll show you that I'm different than the other Democrats. They want a 28% corporate tax. I want a 25% corporate tax. See, I'm different. I'm different. I'm more moderate. But that's a fundamental miscalculation, and here's why. None of the Trump voters in West Virginia are concerned about, you know, I feel like the corporate tax rate is too high right now. They, they don't think about that at all, at all. When you have Democrats in a, a red state or Republicans in a red state, it's not like they sit around all day thinking, it would be great if our politicians were more corporate. It would be great if they deregulated Wall Street more and cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations more. No, you, this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a West Virginia Democrat. A West Virginia Democrat, if you actually want to reflect the values that are in the state, you, it would be understandable to be a little more socially conservative. So namely, you're, you know, they're not as pro-abortion in West Virginia, right? They're, they're, when it comes to guns, they want the government to take a hands-off approach. That's, those are the areas where they're more conservative. The voters are more conservative. They are not more conservative on economics. In fact, we covered a story recently. CNN went to talk to these voters in West Virginia, and all of them were like, damn, we really do love the fact that we're getting stimulus checks from the government. Wow, would you look at that? The government actually has the ability to look out for its people. This is wonderful. I needed this money. So they're actually more populist. They're more populist in West Virginia. They're left on economic issues, and they're moderate to maybe slightly right-leaning on social issues. That's not Joe Manchin. 
Joe Manchin is right on social issues, but also right wing on economic issues, run, rushing in at the last minute to save the day for corporate America. Voters are not going to give you points for that, Dippy. Nobody's going to say, thank God Joe's looking after the corporations. I mean, it's absurd, and this is always what happens, man. Biden waters it down. He compromises up front. Then Manchin comes in and says, no, I'm the most powerful person in the country, and I disagree with even that. So what are you going to do, Joe Biden? What are you going to do? you going to keep letting this idiot spit in your eye repeatedly? What are you going to do about it? And the answer is yes, he's going to let him spit in his eye repeatedly. That's what he's going to do. Even though there absolutely are ways to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and the rest of these idiots, there's seven or eight of them who are pretty conservative Democrats to the right of Biden in the Senate, there's ways to get them to fall in line. For the love of God, take a carrot or stick approach. Call a meeting with Joe Manchin. Talk to him. Be like, listen, bro, I need your support for the $15 minimum wage. I need your support for the 28% corporate tax rate. Really, they should go back to 35. I need it. And if you're willing to play ball, I'm going to make it worth your while. What do you need? What do you want? I'm the president. I got almost unlimited power. I'll hook you up. You want extra money for West Virginia for certain infrastructure projects? You want, to, you want a position in my administration? What do you want? What do you want? I'll hook you up if you do the right thing. But if you don't do the right thing, what can I say? You just made my biggest enemies list, and you're going to regret it. And I'll make sure that you never hold a job in this town again. This is what you need to do, carrot or stick approach to get them to fall in line. But it's the other way around. Joe Manchin is playing Joe Biden like a fiddle. God, it's so fucking annoying. He's so annoying. Everything at the last... He just steps in at the last minute all the time to be like, no, actually, we can't have good things. It's incredibly frustrating. So, and, but by the way, in, in some ways, Manchin outlefted Biden because Biden did a $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. Manchin originally wanted $4 trillion, almost double what Biden was calling for. Biden, when he campaigned, said $7 trillion. So yet again, the classic move, let's water, water it down, water it down, water it down and then act like it's some sort of bold FDR-style change. FDR's rolling over in his grave watching this shit. This Democratic Party is a shell of its former self. All right, next. So there's this story that blew up. Apparently, the MLB, Major League Baseball, is pulling out of doing the All-Star Game in Georgia. It was originally planned for Georgia. They pulled out. The reason they pulled out is because Georgia just passed an incredibly restrictive voting law. So the backstory is actually pretty straightforward. Um, we all know what happened in Georgia in the presidential election. We all know what happened in Georgia in the runoff Senate elections. The Democrats won. They cleaned house. They swept. Georgia was previously viewed as a pretty safe red state. Now the, the Democrats swept. So the response to that from Republicans was, what if we just rigged it? What if we made it much more difficult for certain communities to vote by putting a number of barriers in their way? What if we did that? And what if we enacted this change immediately after the Democrats won the White House and the two Senate seats? So in other words, it's, listen, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. That that's exactly what went on. You're gonna, why in, in 2021 are you passing some sort of significant 
voting reform? The Republicans are doing that. Why are you doing that? It's because the Democrats just swept. So they're just trying to make it much more difficult for certain populations to vote in Georgia and therefore making it more likely that Republicans can win Georgia again. That's what's going on here. Now, we don't need to get into the details. We don't need to get into the specifics. Plenty of other outlets will outline for you exactly what's part of this voting reform. But you had the MLB say, well, this is obvious and this is gross, and they pulled out. Now, there's a bigger conversation to be had about to what extent you want corporations really involved in politics. Because it seems like a package deal, if you want them involved in social issues, where sometimes they end up on the right side of the issue, well, you're also agreeing in principle to corporations getting involved in politics. And then when corporations get involved on economic stuff, they're reliably on the wrong side of it because they're looking out for their own bottom line, and they're not looking out for the American people. In fact, there's always a tension between what corporations, what's good for corporations and what's good for your average American. So there's a deeper conversation to be had there. But this is rich. So Mitch McConnell weighs in. Look at this. McConnell in Kentucky calls actions of MLB, Koch, who was the sponsor who also pulled out, and Delta, in opposition of Georgia voting law, stupid. My warning to corporate America is to stay out of politics, he says. I'm not talking about political contributions, he adds. Well, that is unbelievable. I've never seen a more hypocritical, contradictory statement in my entire life. Mitch McConnell's like, corporations are trying to dictate politics to us. They need to stay out of politics. Oh, did, no, I didn't. No, on economic stuff, no. You, you could give political contributions. That's cool. But, but, but stay out of it when it comes to, like, social issues and stuff. So in other words, what Mitch McConnell is saying is, I still want to be corrupt. I still want corporations to pay me in campaign contributions. I want that. I want the entire Republican Party to continue to be corrupt. I want all of us to get that big donor money. Stay out of politics in other ways, because I disagree with your opinion on that thing. If you didn't already know, and you did already know this, but there are zero principles in this man's head. There's not an honest bone in his body. He has less than no integrity. And this is just such a great example of his kind of politics. You know, it, brazen contradictions, brazen, brazen hypocrisy, and he doesn't care because to him it's all about what's, what's self-serving. What's self-serving for him is, hey, stay out of politics when I disagree with you, but when I agree with you, yeah, then you get in politics. And also, by the way, let's continue to be corrupt. So listen, I, what I will say to, to Mitch McConnell is this. Bro, I will take that if you are putting the deal on the table right now, corporations need to totally stay out of politics, I'll take that deal. But that, that's for everything. So in other words, if corporations need to stay out of politics, that means, yes, no more, you know, silly woke virtue signaling, getting obsessed with social issues and, like, identity stuff, and no more of that, right? So that's all got to go. But also, no more political contributions at all, no more bribery, no more corruption, no more pay-to-play at the political level, no more, I donated X amount to you, now I want a tax break, now I want a subsidy, now I want you to deregulate my industry. 
no more any of that. You want to take that deal? I will take that deal right now. I'll take that deal right now. You know, listen, it is true. There's plenty of people on the left who love the fact that, you know, corporations do get get involved in virtue signaling and woke stuff. By the way, I don't even consider this like woke stuff. This is actually a very rare instance where the corporation is correct. Like there are times when corporations supported gay marriage early on. And it's like, yeah, you're correct. I have a problem in principle with corporations dictating our politics and being involved in politics, but every now and then they get one right. So I don't even consider this part of the woke virtue signaling stuff, but I will take the deal right now that corporations should totally stay out of politics if he were to agree that includes economic stuff, that includes bribery, that includes corruption. Because yes, if corporations stay out of politics, you also wouldn't have tremendous lobbying against the $15 minimum wage because the only special interest group in the country that was against the $15 minimum wage it was uh, the restaurant association. It was, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, the big businesses. They're the only people who are against the $15 minimum wage, and they were lobbying against it. So if you say corporations out of politics, I say I'll take that deal right now. Get them out of the economic stuff, no more corruption, no more bribery, and I'll, I'll say, fine, get rid of all the virtue signaling identity stuff, get rid of all the social issue stuff, you know. So I, I will take that deal, but he, he would never take that deal. He would never take that deal. Because the fact of the matter is, he's so addicted to that corporate money, and he's been a bitch of corporations his entire adult life, his entire career in office. See, that's the thing. Somebody made this point, and I think it's a brilliant point. They're like, why would corporations even listen to Mitch McConnell now when they know no matter what, he's going to do our bidding? Mitch McConnell is pro-monopoly. doesn't matter how big these companies get. He'll let them keep getting bigger and bigger and devour everything in sight. He doesn't care that they're anti-competitive. He doesn't care. So... He's totally, he doesn't want to break any of these businesses up, whether it's financial institutions or big tech or anything like that. He doesn't want to break any of them up. He just, his, the thing that they just got through in 2017, Trump's signature accomplishment, was the 2017 tax cut law, which cut corporate taxes massively and cut taxes on wealthy individuals massively. So no matter what, they know he's going to deregulate us. He's going to cut our taxes. He's going to give us subsidies. He's not going to break us up. They know that. Why would they listen to you about anything? About it? You're their bitch. You represent them. So they know that you're never going to change. So they're not going to do anything you fucking say. They don't care if you're against anything they do on social issues. They don't care because they know no matter what, the next day you go to work, who are you going to be serving? Them. So, and just so everybody understands, because I see this goofy point every now and then on my Twitter timeline, you're out of your mind if you actually think that corporations being woke is going to somehow lead Republicans to now genuinely be anti-corporate. <laughs> My ass cheek, son. Their, their ideology hasn't changed since Reagan. That shit has been the exact same. The exact same. Deregulate, cut taxes for the wealthy. Deregulate, cut taxes for the wealthy. All day, every day. Whether it came in the Reaganomics package or it came in the compassionate conservatism package of George W. Bush, or it came in the Trumpian populist package, their actual policies were the same. So there is no, there is no faction that's going to start being anti-corporate because, you know, pol- because corporations are being somewhat woke in some ways. It's just not going to happen. So anyway, uh, Mitch McConnell is a colossal clown. He's a hypocrite. He's an idiot. And... Um, This is just such a clear example that 
he's not operating from principle in any way, shape, or form. He's like, corporations stay out of politics, but not, not with the money and the corruption, because I love the money and the corruption. I base my entire identity and existence off that. Okay. Next. So this is a great interview that I want to show you. Uh, Mehdi Hassan pressed Bernie Sanders and really grilled him on something here. This is interesting. Just on Joe Manchin, you say you support getting rid of the filibuster, but Senator Joe Manchin has said he won't agree to that. He doesn't back a $15 minimum wage increase. He doesn't back the 28% corporate tax rate uh, that's proposed. When you were running for president, you said you would go to West Virginia and rally working people there against Senator well, Manchin, look, pressuring you're gonna go to do the right thing. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just ask a question. Let me just ask a question, Senator. Do you think President Biden should pressure Joe Manchin in the way you said you would, or will that just make him defect? to the Republican Party, some people say. First of all, talk to Joe Manchin, but second of all, uh, there is a lot of work being done internally uh, in terms of bringing the Democratic caucus together. Uh, once again, we passed the most significant piece of emergency legislation, which among other things, will cut childhood poverty in half. I expect that the second reconciliation bill will be very profound in creating millions of good paying jobs. And by the way, I'm going to do everything that I can, along with others, in making sure that we do pass that $15 an hour minimum wage. But you support internal pressure on Joe Manchin, not publicly going to West Virginia and calling him out, as you said. Well, I think there are varieties. I have no problem with going to West Virginia. But I, I think we need a grassroots movement that makes it clear that Joe Manchin and everybody else in the United States said it, including Republicans that the progressive agenda is what the American people want. They want to raise that minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. They believe that health care is a human right, should be universal. They demand that the rich stop paying their fair share of taxes. These are not my ideas. This is what the American people want right now. And our job is to rally the American people in every state in this country to make sure that the government starts working for the working class of this country, not just the 1%. So that was not a good answer. That was not a good answer. He said something along the lines of like, I have no problem going to West Virginia. Okay, so go do it. What are you waiting for? Joe Manchin has already gotten in the way of a number of important things that are necessary. What are you waiting for to go to West Virginia? How many times does he have to do this before you say, okay, now I'm going to go to West Virginia? Is it like five of the major left-wing policy goals that he needs to block and destroy before you go there? What are you waiting for? I have no problem going with it. Okay, I don't, I don't really care if you have a problem with it or don't have a problem with it. I care if you're actually going to go. And if he's not going, you're being all talk, dog. I don't know what you want me to tell you. But the most important point is this. And credit to Mehdi Hassan. That really was a phenomenal question. It was great. Um, Bernie said, quote, there is a lot of work being done internally. No. No, 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 no. That's. The pro- that's the exact problem summed up in one sentence. Because that's what AOC said when people on the left were hashtag forced to vote and trying to hold them accountable. That, 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 there's a lot of stuff going on internally. That's the problem. 
when you're playing the internal game, the establishment will win every single time, 100% of the time, because they have the levers of power. They have the levers of power. They make the final decision. If you're playing the game internally, you're playing on their turf and on their terms. You're never going to win that game. You think you can, like, out Machiavellian backroom deal Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi? Their whole life has been Machiavellian backroom, smoke-filled backroom deal cutting. That's their whole life. That's all they know. Taking money from corporate donors, representing the corporate donors, and destroying legislation that would otherwise be important for the people. This is what they do. So when you say there's a lot of work being done internally, well, how'd that work out? Which gets to the main point. He says, well, we passed the most significant piece of emergency legislation. You passed a piece of legislation that was supposed to have $2,000 checks. It didn't. That was supposed to have a $15 minimum wage. It didn't. That was supposed to be recurring in some form or fashion to be somewhat like the New Deal, where for generations we got the payoffs of that. But you didn't. It was a one-time adrenaline shot. That's what that bill was. You're supposed to be the left flank of the Democratic Party. So you're supposed to be holding them accountable when they fail and they water down legislation. You're not doing that. Now you're just cheerleading their milquetoast proposal. That's what you're doing. You're cheerleading the results of what was in that bill when you're supposed to be the le- advocating for the left flank. And the things that got left out were the most important to the left and to the American people. And see, there is no, it's way too easy to get the left flank of the Democratic Party to just become cheerleaders for the corporate Democrat agenda. That's way too easy. It's way too easy. They need to be principled. They need to stand their ground. They need to know how to fight. And you're never going to win when the battle is internal. So all the things that Bernie says he wants now, $15 minimum wage, he wants to lower the Medicare age to 55, literally none of that is going to happen unless you take the fight external. The only way that Bernie has a chance of getting any of his main priorities to actually pass is to do exactly what Mehdi Hassan is saying. You're going to have to go to West Virginia and rally against Joe Manchin. Brit, fuck, you and Biden go do it. You're going to have to rally against Joe Manchin. You're going to have to go to Arizona and rally against Kirsten Cinema. You're going to have to use public pressure campaigns, call them out directly, get people involved, have all the left-wing groups be crystal clear. If you cross us on this, whatever it may be, $15 minimum wage, um, the new thing is uh, child care they're trying to put in this bill, lower the Medicare age to 55, whatever the idea is, If you cross us on these, every left-wing group in the country, whoever it may be, Justice Democrats, Progressive, uh, you know, PCCC, you name it, right, Sunrise Movement, if you cross us, we are going to make sure there's a primary opponent against you, we're going to fund that primary opponent to the best of our ability, we're going to push for them relentlessly, and we have Joe Biden, the president with a 60% approval rating, and Bernie Sanders, the most popular senator in the country, they will campaign directly against you, Kirsten Sinema and, and uh, Joe Manchin and whoever else gets in the way. So now listen, you could also, you should do a carrot and stick approach. So in other words, if you work with us, you'll be my best friend and I'll campaign for you, I'll support you. And, you know, Biden can offer these guys goodies for their home states or positions in the administration, there's a lot that can be done if, they, if you want to do the carrot approach. But if they don't agree to the carrot approach, well, then you better break out that whooping stick, son. And this is not that. This is like, I'm going to lose on my main ideas, and then when I lose, I'm going to cheerlead for the bill as if it has my main ideas in it. 
And he, I mean, honestly, it's embarrassing to say this publicly now. There's a lot of work being done internally. That has never, ever, 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 ever worked. The only way the left wins victories is through popular movements from the bottom up, public pressure, where politicians feel like I literally have no choice but to do the right thing here, because if I don't do the right thing, my career's done and my name is tarnished forever. The only thing that can make a politician override listening to their donors, because they're corrupt as hell, the only thing that could override that is when they feel like they literally have no choice. And the way you make them feel like they have absolutely no choice is either to give them the carrot approach and give them things for voting in the right way, or use the stick approach and say, this is going to totally tarnish your name, your legacy, and you will not have a career if you vote the way that you want to vote. That's what you got to do. So I never want to hear that again. There is a lot of work being done internally. That's how the left always gets rolled and has forever gotten rolled. I mean, we haven't had many left-wing victories since fucking FDR. Maybe sprinkle in a handful with LBJ, you know, but the Obama presidency across the board was clearly corporatist and neoliberal. It was just Bill Clinton 2.0. Like, we, this approach has not worked and will never work. So, Bernie, I love you, man, but you got to wake up because I don't doubt his sincerity. Bernie Sanders is not corrupt, and I think he's incredibly sincere and honest. So since that's the case, he needs to take an honest look at the past few decades in American politics and realize playing that internal game does not work. So take the fight external. That's our only, only, only hope. All right, let me do one more and then we'll take a break. New poll is out on celebrities and politics, and the results are, they are what they are. About 30,000 people were polled for this, so take a look. Actors Matthew McConaughey and Dwayne The Rock Johnson have shown keen interest in joining politics. Would you like to see them run for Texas governor and the U.S. presidency, respectively? So the people that answered yes, a total of 58% answered yes. For McConaughey to run for governor of Texas and The Rock to run for president, 29% want both McConaughey and Johnson, 17% want Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and 12% want Matthew McConaughey. Only 21% are not sure, and 21% say no. So again, that top-line number is the most important. 58% say Matthew McConaughey should run for governor of Texas and Dwayne The Rock Johnson should run for president. So now let me show you the next numbers here. Who among the following male Hollywood stars would you like to see run for president? Tom Hanks wins with 22%, followed by Will Smith right behind him, 21%. George Clooney, 17%. Leonardo DiCaprio, 13%. Harrison Ford, 10%. Robert Downey Jr., 9%. Robert De Niro, 8%. Who among the following female Hollywood stars would you like to see run for president? Angelina Jolie, 30%. Oprah Winfrey, 27%. Uh, Dolly Parton, 12%. Ellen DeGeneres, 9%. Meryl Streep, 9%. Helen Mirren, 7%. Jane Fonda, 6%. So really, there's quite a bit of separation when you look at it. The top two on the men is Tom Hanks and Will Smith. 
Um, the top two for the women is Angelina Jolie and Oprah Winfrey. So, I mean, listen, man, what's the takeaway here? I don't even know. I guess you could say that ever since Trump won, it's, there's been a little bit of a game change in the sense that it's pretty clear that celebrities can win. And if anything, they come in with a sort of built-in um, advantage because, I mean, at the end of the day, what is politics when you're campaigning and running for office? How many people can you get to know you and how many people can you get to like you? And celebrities have an advantage, but then I guess you could also make the counter argument, though, that people also love to hate celebrities, so maybe they don't. So I don't know. I actually don't know um, what the takeaway is here, but you can even say, you can go back to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was an actor and then he won the presidency. Republicans love to elect celebrity celebrities. You know what I mean? Like Ronald Reagan was an actor. Donald Trump was a reality star host. But it's also funny because then they turn around and say whenever an actor says something political and it's leaning in a left direction, they're like, yeah, shut up and stick to acting. Stick to your day job. Well, you guys just happen to love it when they agree with you and they speak up. So, yeah, I don't know what the takeaway is here. I do kind of fear that, yes, I think it is probably easier for one of these people to win over a traditional politician. And that's not to, I don't know which is worse because traditional politicians suck and they're corrupt, but the celebrities, they also suck in a different way in that they're just airhead narcissist megalomaniacs. So maybe they don't have the corruption issue as much as they just have the, you don't know dick about dick issue, you know? So I don't know, man. I, I'm always like put off when people are so happy and open and willing to give it a shot with celebrities, when at the end of the day, you don't know what these people believe about anything. You know what I mean? Like, in a world that made sense, when you vote for politicians, you're thinking, what are their policies? What are they going to do? What are they going to implement? What are they in favor of? What are they against? Let's talk about, talk about what policies they're in favor of, how they're going to fight for those policies, and maybe, like, some of their record. That's what you should look at in a world that made sense. But this world doesn't make sense. And people don't care about where they stand on the policies. They're just, it's just like, do I like the person? Do I not like the person? How do they make me feel? How do they present themselves? And, you know, here we are. We're in a situation where people want The Rock to be president, Matthew McConaughey to be governor of Texas. But, I mean, Schwarzenegger won in uh, California previously for governor. And you have Jesse Ventura in Minnesota. Although, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of a hypocrite myself here because I actually sort of like Jesse Ventura in a number of ways. So I don't think this shows that a lot of people are not thinking about policy when they're talking about who they want to run the country or run a state. And that is a little bit depressing. But there you have it. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is popular. Matthew McConaughey is popular. Tom Hanks and Will Smith could run and potentially win something. Angelina Jolie and Oprah could run and potentially win something. I don't know what it says about us, but to the extent it says anything, I'm not sure it's good. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, we are going to obliterate Josh Hawley. Stay right there, y'all.
beach. All right, y'all. All right, we're back, and I have my seltzer. Yay! I was very parched in those earlier segments because I didn't have my seltzer next to me. And if there's one thing that the big seltzer sellout needs, it's seltzer next to him 24-7. All right, so let's continue. Let's talk about Josh Hawley. So Josh Hawley has built himself uh, a little bit of a reputation uh, as a populist right-winger. And um, now, before I continue here and tell you about his record, let me just say, I think there are plenty of actual voters out there who are what it's fair to describe as populist right. Um, and again, I think the perhaps the best way to look at it is right-wingers who maybe identify with the right culturally and agree with the right on social issues, but on economic stuff, they lean more left. Um, That's how I would define populist right. So there are plenty of voters out there that are populist right, and regular people who it's fair to describe as populist right. But in terms of elected politicians in Washington, D.C., they don't exist, or they very rarely buck trends and do the right thing. So one example would be Josh Hawley supporting those $2,000 checks. That would be him actually doing the right thing. Now he wants to get out of some of the wars. Um, That would be him doing the right thing. But in so many ways, they're just not really populist right. They're frauds. So Josh Hawley didn't support the $15 minimum wage. Josh Hawley supports right to work, which is anti-union stuff. Josh Hawley's not a supporter of the PRO Act, which would massively help average workers in this country. So anyway, look at what was just dug up by CNN. This is, um, this is from the K-File, Andrew Kaczynski. He says, Josh Hawley, a critic of Biden picks support for wars in the Middle East, previously blogged in support of the Iraq war. Now, you might say, well, Kyle, come on, it's possible for people to have a change of heart. And he just had a change of heart. So who are we to judge? Or who are we to judge? This seems like we're being too strict. Well, when you see the specifics, you'll see why I'm criticizing him. So in 2005, he said the following. The question should not be, when do we get to leave? But instead, how are we going to win? This was 05. This is after we've already been there for years. Now, it's a fair thing to say that was a long time ago. So you could write that off because he did. He had a genuine change of heart. So why are you being so tough on him? Well, when campaigning for the Senate in 2017, Hawley accepted the endorsement of John Bolton, saying that Bolton, quote, understands the many threats posed to America. So now it's not just a few years after the war started. It's in 2017 he's happy to accept the endorsement of a war criminal. A war criminal. In 2018, Hawley spoke in support of Trump ending the Iran nuclear deal. That's definitely a hawkish thing, pushing us closer to war with Iran. Uh, And moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel. And he never mentioned in 2018 withdrawing from either Iraq or Afghanistan. And then I guess you could say the final nail in the coffin here is he's also praised, 
He praised Henry Kissinger and also cited Bill Crystal. So listen, you want to say, hey, despite all that, I think he, he still had a change of heart. Fine, that's your prerogative. You can say that. But what I'll say is this. I could have maybe overlooked it in 2005 writing in support of these wars, even though that's years in, right? Afghanistan war started in 2001. Iraq war started in 2003. In 05, he's advocating for hawkishness and staying there. But if you want to say, hey, you can evolve from that, that's fine. I cannot overlook the 2017 and 2018 stuff. I can't overlook that. Because now it's not, oh, you had a genuine change of heart. Now I'm looking at him like, no, you're just angling. You're just, you're hopping on the bandwagon because you see what is popular. And so you're trying to like hop on board with what is popular among the American public. And I don't know what he actually believes. That's the point. It's one thing if you said this stuff in 05, you had a change of heart, and now you're anti-war. But 05, when we got stuff in 2017 and 2018 of you being hawkish, I just, I don't know what you believe. So I don't believe you is the point. And so that's where we are with the state of the so-called populist right. You know, I think there are plenty of voters out there who are, consider themselves conservative or right-wing, right-leaning, who want to end wars, who want stimulus checks, who want to raise the minimum wage and stuff like that. And the polls bear that out. They show it. But the so-called populist right in Washington, D.C., they're frauds. Every now and then they might buck an orthodoxy or buck a trend, but usually this is what you get. So, I mean, my takeaway from this is you can't trust a fucking guy the word says. Uh, you can't trust a word the fucking guy says. My dyslexia came out there. Can't trust a word the fucking guy says. And uh, we got to hold these politicians to high standards, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And it's just a shame that there are so few really principled strong voices that have consistently been fighting for the right things. Okay, next. Talk about an article that's going to make you want to kill yourself. So there's an article that came out, I think it's in the Washington Post and maybe the New York Times. I'm pretty sure it's the Washington Post. And it's titled, How Biden Tames the Left. Mm, that stings here and that. But it says, at least for now. So uh, I want to read you some portions of it, and then we'll discuss it. Leaders on the left also say they feel the administration is listening to them in a way that feels new. President Donald Trump hurled racist slurs at top liberals. President Barack Obama's White House was significantly more respectful, but kept many liberal activists at a distance, deriding some as the professional left. Klain that's uh, Biden's chief of staff, returns emails and calls from top liberal groups and regularly brings in small groups of liberal lawmakers for meetings, taking care to be sure they feel there's been a meaningful exchange of ideas. There's been a meaningful exchange, aides and lawmakers say. I said the ideas thing because I can't get Dave Rubin out of my head. Um, They continue. And nodding to a favorite platform of the liberal elite, Klain frequently uses his Twitter account to like or retweet messages, even from lesser-known activists, a move that takes less than a second of his time, but is noticed and widely discussed among liberal networks. Quote, I feel like we're getting a little bit spoiled for future presidents, said Varshini Prakash, the co-founder of Sunrise, 
a liberal group focused on reducing climate change that endorsed Sanders in the 2020 primary. Okay, listen, it has to be said, this is the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Is that really all it takes to get the groups that are supposed to be outsider leftists to fall in line? I mean, this is the equivalent of a little head pat. That's all this is. Hey, great job there, buddy. Good job, Scooter. Keep it up. That's what this is. Hmm. What thoughts do you have on this? I'm listening intently. Oh, you believe that? That's interesting. We will take that into consideration. Second they get behind closed doors, (coughs) they actually think we're going to do it. Are you kidding? How well am I supposed to interpret this? Because, listen, say what you want to say, the, you know, COVID relief bill. Are there good parts of it? Sure. But who are we kidding? The main things that the left were fighting for were left out of the bill. The main things, $2,000 checks, $15 minimum wage, and the other thing is none of, it, none of this stuff is recurring at all. So it's a one shot of adrenaline, and it doesn't last. That's what was in the COVID relief bill. That's what was in the COVID relief bill. So what are you... What are you pointing to as, like, they're listening to us and they're fighting for and implementing our ideas? What are you pointing to? They don't have anything to point to. They have nothing to point to. Has Biden ended the wars? No. Has Biden legalized marijuana? No. Has Biden done student loan debt relief? No. All he did was, like, 0.01% of student loans um, were wiped out. And that was just at flat-out scam for-profit colleges. The rest of them are still there. So what do you, so all it takes is for Biden and his team to retweet your shit and pat you on the head and have a couple meetings with you and call you. And as long as they're sitting there listening to you, if they don't do any of the things you want, you're going to give them credit. You're going to say you're getting spoiled by this administration. They're playing you guys for fools. They're playing you for fools. By the way, even if Biden was doing a decent job, you're still supposed to be aggressive and principled and hit him repeatedly from the left, put constant pressure on him to try to get him to do more. I mean, it's just, this is a conversation I've had a number of times with a number of people, but as a co-founder of Justice Democrats, one of the things that I learned the hard way is that whenever you have institutions, it's really hard to keep an institution on the tracks because then there's a bureaucracy, then there's so many voices in the room, then there's so many competing visions. And it's really hard to get, uh, you know, an institution or a group to stay true to the original message every step of the way and be truly principled. And I think that's just part of the nature of doing a big project is that when you get so many people involved and you have so many competing voices and when you get a bureaucracy, You don't have that clarity of vision and the small team where you keep it close to the chest. And there are consequences to that, man. There are real consequences to that. And unfortunately, this is one of them. You have people who, it honestly, it's just easy to to defang them. It's easy to get them to feel like, I was retweeted by the chief of staff. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I'm going to go tell my mom and dad. These people are, you're supposed to have a constant conflict with these people. You're supposed to be at odds with these people. You're supposed to use the bully pulpit and push them around. You're supposed to take that left-wing progressive energy and go after them viciously. 
you know? And it reminds me of the thing that Ilhan Omar said to Mehdi Hassan, where her point was, when Mehdi was like, hey, what do you say to people on the left who say you haven't fought hard enough, or whatever it is, 50 minimum wage, Medicare for all, you name it. She, her, Ilhan Omar's answer was something along the lines of, it's on Biden. It's on Biden to get those lawmakers, the conservative lawmakers, Joe, Biden, uh, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema. It's on him to get them to fall in line. That's what he's got to do. So look at, look at that answer. That answer assumes that Biden agrees with them. Biden's heart is really with the left. He just, he just can't get everything done because he's got a big, bad conservative Democrats, and so he's got he's to come up with a better strategy. Why are you trusting that he's on the right side of it? What evidence is there that, like, oh, he's with us? Really? Look at his whole fucking career, and you're just going to assume, like, he's on our side, whether it's him trying to cut Social Security and Medicare, him being a deficit hawk, him supporting outsourcing deals, him supporting the Patriot Act, him supporting the Iraq War. The list goes on and on. Him being a drug warrior. Why would you just assume, like, ah, God, we couldn't get the thing in the bill because ah, Biden tried, but it was the Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. So... Just admit that at the end of the day, all you have is like, whatever mansion and cinema will allow us to do is what we'll do. And outside of that, all you need to do to make us feel like we're a success and that we're really important is pat us on the head, pretend you agree with us, give us some kind words of encouragement, and that's it. I really do find it so sad, man. This is the state of the left. This is the state of the left. The left should be incredibly unapologetic, and aggressive. There should be a vibrant labor movement. We should have incredibly high unionization rates where the union regularly throws around their weight and demands things and gets what they want. And This is a real defanged left, and it really is. I, I hate to say it, but it does feel like there's a colossal gap between what's the professional left. Obama was right in saying, oh, there's a professional left. There is. But what he didn't understand is that actually the professional left are really easy for you to dupe and for you to make them feel like they have a say even when it's not reflected in policy. So I think there is a professional left, and there is a a gap between your average activist, your average working person, your average politically involved and engaged person, and the professional left that's supposed to be representing their interests, but really at the end of the day, they're willing to take the half measure on the half measure as long as they get retweeted or liked or a pat on the head from the establishment and from the administration. They get a li- all they need to do get a little close to power, have power, give them a little pat on the back and say, you're cool, you're with us. And they're like, okay, okay, we're with you, we're with you. We're with the people who didn't do the $15 minimum wage, who didn't do the $2,000 checks, we're with the people who didn't end the wars, we're with the people who didn't legalize marijuana, we're with the people who eliminated less than 1% of student loan debt, we're with you guys. Ugh. It really hurts, man. It really hurts. It really hurts. It makes you, it does in some ways, it makes you feel like there's no hope. It does. But the good news is there actually is hope. I really do think there is hope. Because there is a, a, a populist energy bubbling up around the country among the real people. And I think that has ripple effects. And I also think that office of the White House is incredibly powerful, and if we could just get somebody who really believes this stuff and means this stuff elected, so much can happen. And honestly, even just one real leader in Congress or the Senate could, could change the game completely, you know? Because this is what we learned. All you need is one person willing to take that risk, and then a lot of the others 
jump on board the bandwagon, you know? Um, it's like with when Cory Bush came out and said, oh, if you supported the insurrection, you should be expelled as a lawmaker. That's not even something necessarily I agree with, by the way. I don't know what my position is on that. I mean, that is sort of an undemocratic thing they're calling for. But all it took was one person in Congress to say it, and then everybody else was like, oh, yeah, totally, yeah, I'm with that, I'm with that. So imagine we had one leader who was actually for the right stuff and was willing to fight for it. I do think you'd immediately have about 12 House Democrats hop on board with it, the real lefties hop on board with it. But you need a leader, and we don't have a leader. And unfortunately, even when you look at the professional left, there are no leaders. There's people waiting for likes and retweets and then to sing the praises of the moderate corporate Democratic administration. It's really sad. All right, next. So what you might not know is that behind the scenes, corporations say very different things than what they say uh, in public. Or perhaps you do know that. It seems like it's relatively obvious. Take a look at this from Newsweek. Big restaurant chains are telling investors that a national minimum wage hike wouldn't be a big deal, even as their corporate lobbying groups in Washington fight plans for a $15 minimum wage. Quote, we share your view that a national discussion on wage issues for working Americans is needed, but the Raise the Wage Act is the wrong bill at the wrong time for our nation's restaurants. The National Restaurant Association wrote in a letter to congressional leaders in February, quote, the restaurant industry and our workforce will suffer from a fast-tracked wage increase and elimination of the tip credit. The following day, a top executive at Denny's, one of the nation's, one of the, excuse me, one of the association's members told investors that gradual increases in the minimum wage haven't been a problem for the company at all. In fact, California's law raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2023 has actually been good for the diner chain's business, according to Denny's chief financial officer, Robert Veristek. So it's helped them. Business is better after that. Um, Let me give you some more. He goes on to say, quote, as they've increased their minimum wage kind of in a tempered pace over that time frame, if you look at that time frame from from us, California has outperformed the system. Over that time, they had six consecutive years of positive guest traffic, not just positive sales, but positive guest traffic as the minimum wage was going up. In that article, they go on. The list is endless of various companies and heads of companies or top brass in these companies that say, like McDonald's. Somebody at the top of McDonald's said, quote, we'll be just fine. Cheesecake Factory. They were bragging, the like parent company was bragging about helping to defeat the $15 minimum wage. Then they admitted behind the scenes, oh, it it would be totally fine to pay that. It wouldn't affect us in a negative way at all. Um, Top executives from Diamond Rock Hospitality, Kroger, HCA Healthcare, Hilton, Six Flags, they all downplayed the negative effects of a minimum wage increase and argued It might even be a positive. This is what they're saying behind the scenes. It might even be a positive, and here's why. They say it could could boost consumer spending. And then their restaurants can get a windfall from that. So do, do you understand what's going on here? 
you have the National Restaurant Association, and a lot of these corporations lobby to keep that minimum wage low because they feel like it can pad the bottom line when they do that. But really, the top brass of a lot of these companies is like, if it raised the minimum wage, it wouldn't be the end of the world, and it might even help us. We don't know, but it might even help us. And it's the opposite of the trickle-down economy idea. It would be like a trickle-up economy, a bottom-up economy. Like there's supply-side economics, and this would be like demand-side economics. So in other words, if you give money to people who are in the middle or at the bottom of the economic ladder, they need that money. And when they get that money, they spend it pretty much immediately, which has a ripple effect through the rest of the economy and helps. The economy is better off when you give money to the people who need money and then they can spend it immediately and, you know, you have this multiplier effect. And you know, listen, it seems relatively straightforward, but this has not been the dominant philosophy in Washington for decades. You know, you have Art Laffer and the Milton Friedman approach and Larry Kudlow. Like, these are the people who've really been crafting the economic direction of the country. And what they say is deregulate all the time and cut taxes for the wealthy all the time and cut taxes for corporations all the time and uh, see what happens. And usually you have the boom-bust cycle when, when that occurs. But listen, I don't know how much more evidence people need because it's overwhelming. So take Australia, for example. They have about a $15, the equivalent of a $15 minimum wage. They have the same unemployment rate as the U.S. So this idea that, like, oh, if you raise the minimum wage, it's going to lead to mass unemployment because people will get laid off because they can't pay it. If that was the case, that would have happened in Australia. It didn't happen in Australia. In states that have raised their respective minimum wages in the U.S., these companies are like, we don't really see any down, downsides of it. There are no real negative effects from it. You know, if there was going to be some sort of mass unemployment crisis, some of the states with the higher minimum wages would have it, and they don't. In fact, in some of those states, the unemployment rate is lower. It's lower. So I don't, like, what else do you need to hear? Apparently, if you just took the minimum wage from 1968 and adjusted it for inflation until today, it would be, we have a minimum wage that's over $10 an hour. I think it would be about $12 an hour. If the minimum wage kept up with the growth in Wall Street bonuses, it'd be $44 an hour today. If it kept up with productivity, it'd be about $23 an hour today. So if anything, wages are artificially low. And at the end of the day, the thing that's most important to me is this notion that if you work full-time, you should make enough money to survive. And if you argue against that, what you're doing is you're really arguing for wage slavery. You're telling somebody, I don't care if you work full-time, you shouldn't make enough money to survive. So donate so much of your, of your, the majority of your waking hours, right? Give that to a job, and that job shouldn't even reward you enough so that you can pay the bills and be comfortable enough to live. I really think that's an egregious position, and that's a position that's, uh, I mean, it's just it's a clear indictment on the entire system that we've set up, that that's the reality. If you work a full-time job at minimum wage, you can't afford a one-bedroom apartment anywhere in the country, anywhere. So how, the, how can we pay people that terribly? It just, it's, it's horrendous. It's a terrible thing. And all the evidence I've seen is that when you raise the minimum wage, Workers are better off, and um, it actually helps the economy. It helps the economy. Now, is there a line where you go maybe too high and that, that actually would lead to unemployment? Sure, of course, but we're nowhere near that line. 
And even if you think um, that would happen, we can offset it in ways. So in other words, a lot of people argue that that's going to happen with the $15 minimum wage. That if you do $15, the reason the big companies are okay with it is because the small companies are going to go out of business and that's going to help the big companies. So in other words, if you make a small business pay $15 an hour, they can't afford it. And so they will go out of business or they'll have to fire a bunch of, of, their, of their workers. There's a way to address that without abandoning the $15 minimum wage. The way you address that is to have some sort of tax credit program or subsidy program where you pay those small businesses to keep their workforce on. So you effectively have the government step in and fund the difference in the wages that they would need in order to keep that worker on. So there's ways to address this stuff without just abandoning higher wages for workers. And it's just, it's, they're, it's all total cop-out arguments, man. They make total cop-out bullshit arguments that aren't true. I mean, a lot of the Scandinavian countries, they don't even have minimum wages because you have near universal collective bargaining. And so the wages, the, the floor for the wages is way higher than whatever any minimum wage would nominally be. You have workers like, you know, making at the very minimum like 30 or $40 an hour, the equivalent of 30 or $40 an hour in a lot of these Scandinavian countries. So... If they can afford that and it doesn't lead to economic de- devastation, of course we can afford 15 here. New Zealand just raised it to 20. Is there going to be some sort of apocalyptic scenario? No, it's just going to help the workers. So there you have it. Even the companies behind closed doors admit hey, this wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. All right. Let's talk about lead legalization, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Well, this story is a little unexpected, if I don't say so myself. The Hill is reporting, Snoop Dogg partners with Charles Koch to push federal marijuana legalization. Snoop Dogg and Charles Koch. Yeah, I forget the name of it. They called it like the Marijuana Freedom Alliance or something like that. And you have, it's not just Snoop Dogg. I think there's some other celebrities involved. And you have Charles Koch and a lot of the Koch Network uh, institutions, like Americans for Prosperity and others. So this is one of the rare areas where the Kochs happen to be correct. And what they're trying to do is form this bipartisan group that can then lobby Washington to legalize marijuana. And there's one somewhat questionable part of this, which is um, they say, like, they want to legalize marijuana, and then there's one part that's like, and have it reasonably taxed, which sort of strikes me as the Koch saying, let's not only legalize marijuana, but also keep the taxes really low, don't make the taxes high. But I actually, you know, I don't agree with them on that. I think that you can have some places that have legalized marijuana at the state level, they have a sort of a steep tax on it, and that really doesn't disincentivize people from purchasing it. But beyond that, a lot of the funds go to like important stuff like, you know, potential drug rehab funding or education funding. So I'm not necessarily with that part about like reasonable taxes, which is the Trojan horse for like tax at very, very little, if at all. But in terms of the effects this will have, I actually do think this means something. Because with the Koch brothers getting in on this issue like this, what that tells me is 
the capital is now switching sides. So that was one of the parts of the gay marriage fight that a lot of people didn't know, is that behind the scenes, gay Americans, for whatever reason, are some of the wealthiest Americans. That's, you know, when you look at the demographic breakdown, it's kind of phenomenal. It's kind of amazing. You have gay Americans, you know, have a pretty high income. And so they're politically involved and they were donating to politicians. And so in other words, you had more money on the side of being pro-gay marriage than you did on the side of the anti-gay marriage people, like, for example, the fundamentalist evangelical Christians. And when LGBTQ side of that argument had more money, they bought more influence, and then eventually you had the politicians sort of change their mind. Now, to be fair, it was the, really the Supreme Court that legalized gay marriage in this country. It didn't really come from the politicians. But you saw more politicians flipping and saying they're pro-gay marriage that came with that rise in, in the wealth of gay Americans and the influence that they bought. Now, that's not the only reason, but that is a good indicator, usually, of where the winds in this country are going. And... Here's another issue where previously the people who were aligned against marijuana, their pockets were deeper. You know, you had, there was a time when the alcohol companies were lined up against legalizing marijuana because they viewed it as competition for them. Um, You have various government agencies like the DEA, their whole existence is dependent on drugs being illegal and others. But now you have a lot of big money interests lining up on the side of legalizing weed. You actually have a, a recreational marijuana industry, a medical marijuana industry. A lot of these companies now exist. You have big money donors like the Cokes who are in this for ideological reasons. So it seems to me it's a foregone conclusion that at some point at the federal level it will become legal. I don't know when and I don't know how it'll happen, but I think at some point it's, it's going to become legal. I do. Um, so... I guess this is cool, but really I can't get through this story without bringing up the obvious point, which is I want marijuana to become legal because 60% of the American people want marijuana to become legal. I don't want marijuana to become legal because some asshole big money donor made the politicians do it because the politicians are corrupt. You see what I'm saying? So, like, this gets to a story that we discussed previously about, you know, the MLB getting involved in politics and Mitch McConnell saying, stay out of politics, unless it's, I don't mean campaign contributions, those are cool. I actually would take the deal, and I want the deal, of corporations out of politics, billionaires out of politics, because they do have the outsized influence, because they have the money, they buy the politicians, they do the legal bribery, they're the corrupt ones. And so every now and then we get lucky where a big money interest is on the side that you and I happen to agree with, but again, I, as a matter of principle, I want them out of the system. I want marijuana legal because I think you have a right to put in your body whatever you want to put in your body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. But I also want it legal because 60% of the country wants it legal. I want the will of the people to be reflected. I don't want the will of the people to be one thing, and it's been like that for four or five years, and nothing happened at the federal level, but now they're going to switch because big money's on our side. I just hate, as a matter of principle, I want these big money interests to not control our politics anymore. But having said that, there's a rare issue where I happen to agree with them ideologically, and you're going to see the impact of it. You know, you have this bipartisan group with celebrities who are nominally on the left and right-wing billionaires who are getting together and saying, we're going to do this. And also, I mean, keep it real, I I would bet a lot of money that the Koch people have invested a lot in legal weed companies. 
And so they want to they want to lobby to get it legal, not just for ideological reasons, but also because they can make money when it becomes legal. So that's where we are, man. But listen, now we have California, it's legal, and now New York, it's legal. With those two powerhouses going down, it's got to be a matter of time. The snowball effect, we're too far down that hill with the snowball effect to reverse it. And so I don't know why we have to stop playing around. And also for the justice issue, the criminal justice issue, because you've had people's lives ruined over drugs. And they're not real crimes. You know what a real crime is? A violent crime. You know what a real crime is? A giant financial fraud. It's not a real crime if you're selling marijuana or smoking marijuana or even selling cocaine or doing cocaine. That's not a real crime. And people's lives have been ruined. So legalize, tax, and regulate these drugs and free all the nonviolent drug offenders. I mean, it's just that has to be done. And wipe their records clean, expunge their records. That's the word for it, right? Expunge? I think that's the word for it. Um, Snoop Dogg and Charles Koch being buddy-buddy. I did not see this coming, but it's for the issue of marijuana. This next story is so ridiculous. I had to double take to make sure my eyes weren't deceiving me or it wasn't some parody account. So the official CIA Twitter said the following. The Stinger missiles supplied by the United States gave Afghan guerrillas, generally known as the Mujahideen, the ability to destroy the dreaded MI-24D helicopter gunships deployed by the Soviets to enforce their control over Afghanistan. This is the CIA bragging about arming radical Islamists. This is the CIA bragging about arming the people who later became factionalized, broke up, and they gave us Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. The CIA is bragging about arming Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And by the way, that came back to bite us in the ass in a phenomenal way, with a little thing called 9-11. I am floored that this was posted. How did this clear either whoever the person is that runs the Twitter account or a room full of people who decide was posted on the Twitter account? How did this clear that room? How did this clear that room? Are you kidding me? And just so everybody understands, this was in like the 1980s, this was the consensus. The consensus was, oh, these are the good guys. We're so, we have the Cold War going on. We're so against the Soviet Union that we will arm anybody who's fighting them. So the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan fighting a war there, occupying there. And you had, we armed radical Muslims to beat back the Soviet Union. But of course, turns out when you arm the radical Muslims and give them more power, they enforce draconian theocratic law. And that's what they did. Some of the people that we armed were well known for throwing acid in women's faces. Uh, One of them beheaded a teacher because that teacher was teaching women. This is who we got in bed with. This is who we got in bed with. And there there was a a newspaper at the time, The Independent, which is a British paper, um, praising bin Laden for like a warrior on the road to peace or something along those lines. 
they, they had a picture of him and everything. This was in the Independent at the time, like a glowing profile of bin Laden. Then you have the famous picture of uh, Reagan meeting in the White House with the Mujahideen. Very famous picture now. You know, you've probably seen it at one point or another. I think we've shown it on, on this show a number of times. So it's amazing to me, though, that, like, you can have this, this event in history. Now it's universally understood that what we did was psychotic. And the CIA is bragging about it as if it was positive, as if there were no negative side effects. I mean, this is what happens when you arm radical Islamists, when you arm any sort of radical extremists. By the way, you know another group that we're arming today? We're arming neo-Nazi factions in Ukraine because those neo-Nazi factions are against Russia. And that's actually, by the way, something Obama refused to do, refused to arm factions in Ukraine because he viewed it as such an escalation with Putin and Russia. Trump got in there and he armed them. And then still the idiots in mainstream media in the U.S. accused him of being a puppet of Vladimir Putin when he literally just armed neo-Nazis who are fighting Russia. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And this, guys, just so you know, this isn't like a thing of the past. It's on the record that General Petraeus was saying recently, within the past five years, we should arm al-Qaeda to fight ISIS. This is what he said. We've armed extremists on the ground in Syria. We've armed Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia has armed al-Qaeda on the ground in Yemen because they're fighting the Shia Houthis who took over the government there. This is what we do. This is what we do. And then we're surprised or we act surprised when there's this thing that happens called blowback, the unintended consequences of an interventionist foreign policy. And you arm all these people, and it turns out the so-called moderate rebels are rarely, if ever, moderate. And here we are. The CIA is bragging about arming the Mujahideen in 2021. I've never seen anything this absurd. And by the way, this totally blows up the whole notion that we care about freedom and democracy and human rights because we're arming the people who are the biggest enemies of freedom and democracy and human rights. The biggest enemies. And this isn't just here. We've armed right-wing extremists in, in Central and South America, too. This is standard operating procedure. But it's amazing to me that they don't understand that if you say this shit publicly, nobody's going to agree with you. Nobody on Twitter is going to be like, yeah, that was awesome when we armed al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Everybody's going to be like, what? And now, by the way, you know who really controls politics in this country. You know, it's corporations and billionaires. They control our politics and also what's traditionally called the deep state. I know it sounds conspiratorial, but it's really not. Think about it. Just think about it objectively. Who stays in power from administration to administration? Who is not subject to the political winds and the times? It would be the intelligence agencies, correct? So these are the psychopaths who are really controlling the country, running the country. And this is what they're doing with your tax dollars in your name. Are you proud? All right, next. Huge new report from The Intercept from Lee Fong. Take a look at this. Last-minute Trump rule would let vaccine makers hike prices unchecked. The Biden administration could halt an attack on one of the government's few options to rein in drug prices. 
So we discussed this recently that there's this, I think it's called the Buy-Dole Act, which gives the government the ability anytime there's public funding of research that creates medicine, the government has the ability to step in if, if big pharma starts price gouging and selling it at an unreasonable price. The federal government can step in and say, no, you're not charging that. You're going to charge this. So it's sort of like a price control, but it's a price control of medicine that we created with our tax money. So we created it up front, and then they want to double charge us on the back end and price gouge us? That seems ridiculous. So the government, federal government has the ability to say, no, you can't do that. We're going to charge this lower rate or nothing at all. Federal government can say that's free because taxpayers funded it already. Get this. The federal government has literally never, not once, ever used that authority. There's, you don't need any more evidence as to how Big Pharma bought our government and runs our government and owns our government. That's what happens when you have corruption and legal bribery. Big Pharma gives money to the politicians. The politicians never exert that authority. Give, give money to the president. When the president's in power, he handcuffs the executive agencies who can regulate that. This is what happens. Military industrial complex runs our government. Wall Street runs our government. Billionaires run our government. Big Pharma runs our government. And the deep state, the intelligence agencies, they run our government. This is what happens. So Trump, at the last minute, there's a, a, a rule that he put into place that says, oh, by the way, the Buy-Dole Act doesn't apply to you even if we wanted to. You can hike prices unchecked if you want. So, but it's okay, right, because Biden came in and saved the day, right? He's supposed to revoke all the last-minute Trump rules. Turns out he didn't touch this one. Hmm, interesting. He didn't touch this one. That's weird. The other thing is Biden is considering getting rid of the patent protections, the intellectual property rights for the vaccines, so that other countries can use the vaccine formula so that they can save their populations from COVID. And Big Pharma was like, they're acting like the mafia. They're like, it'd be a shame if you did that because we're supposed to work together as a partner. And if you take an action like that against us, there might be some other negative consequences that we won't tell you about right now. So in other words, they're making threats. Don't you dare consider saving the lives of people in developing countries by letting them use the formula because we care about the money that we'll make from having the formula. They're also talking about hiking the prices soon for the vaccines with the booster shots, for example. So um, that's where we are right now. Biden could reverse this rule. He hasn't reversed this rule. Trump didn't have to put that rule in place, but he put that rule in place as he's pretending to be anti-Big Pharma, by the way. And this is who really runs the government. This is who really owns the government. And you get the raw deal. We don't, Medicare is not even allowed to negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies for fair drug prices. They just have to pay whatever pharma says to pay. And by the way, they're always unreasonable. So there was, uh, they bring up, Lee Fong brings up a great example in this. There was, I forget what the, it was for. Oh, I think it was a prostate cancer drug. Was it a lung something drug? I think it was a prostate cancer drug. $129,000 a year is what it cost. $129,000 a year. And I believe there was some sort of lawsuit. The government stepped in. I think they wanted to invoke the Bayh-Dole Act. And Big Pharma beat that back and was continued, continually allowed to charge $129,000 a year for a necessary medicine. Just so you know, you know how much money goes into research and development for new drugs? $41 billion, I think that's per year, $41 billion the NIH spends on research and development for new drugs, $41 billion. 
And then all of those medicines that we create, Big Pharma goes, we're going to buy up the rights to it and double charge you on the back end and price gouge you. Call me old-fashioned, man, but I think we should nationalize Big Pharma. I think we should nationalize everything involving health, health care, health insurance. Because if you pay $41 billion up front in tax money for research and development, when you get sick, you should just get that drug, and it should be for free. You've got to either do it that way or do it the way they do it in, like, the U.K., where it's, like, a, whatever, a $10 copay or something for any drug. That's how you've got to do it. When you don't do it like that, you get this. You get Big Pharma running the government because they bought the politicians and the politicians are corrupt and they let them get away with murder. They let them get away with murder. And you have the Republican, Trump, he allows them to price gouge now on vaccines and Biden could have reversed it and he hasn't done it yet. And he hasn't even lifted the intellectual property rights yet. This story alone shows you how broken our government is. All right, next. Morning Joe uh, just gave us some of the worst political analysis of all time, talking about Joe Manchin. Take a look. Joe Manchin is really interesting to me in all of this. He's right. There are other Democrats that have some concerns about raising taxes, but none of them are out front of the cameras taking the lead. Manchin is both reveling in his public role, but he also has some more freedom to do it because his state is so red. There is no Democratic base really in West Virginia that he has to worry about. Uh, yes, there are a, a chunk of progressives in West Virginia. The Democrats that live in West Virginia tend to be very, very liberal, but there are so few of them, uh, and he knows that he holds that seat because there are people, frankly, who voted for Donald Trump twice who are also voting for him. So he's able to take kind of this public lead out there, and you saw Jen Psaki, I think, trying to continue to try to walk this very careful line of knitting together uh, those people that make the Democrats the majority with an increasingly powerful progressive left. And so far they've managed to hold it together, but I think that's going to be the central tension, especially considering this decision uh, from the parliamentarian that we're going to be covering uh, from here on out. Yeah, and you know, Michael, still, uh, let's look at the politics of this, because I know a lot of progressives get very upset with Joe Manchin. Every time a package comes out, he says, well, you don't like this part of it or you don't like that part of it. But let's just look at the politics so everybody can understand what's going on here. Uh, there are a lot of Democrats uh, that may have concerns about a bill. Maybe they don't want the corporate rate uh, to go up to 28. Maybe they only want it to go up to 25. But they don't want to get out front for a lot of political reasons. If you're Kristen Sinema, maybe Kristen Sinema, maybe you're balancing things. If you're Mark Warner, if you're Governor, if you're former Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, you may not be as comfortable getting out and saying that crossing the president upsetting your base. So when Joe Manchin does that, coming from a state that Donald Trump won with 68% of the vote, it's good for everybody. Manchin, it's good for Manchin in West Virginia to prove that he, you know, prove his conservative bona mm-hmm. fides and to prove that, hey, Leah, listen, I can be a Democrat and still represent this very red state. It's good for everybody for Joe Manchin to do this. That's what Joe Scarborough just said. It's good for everybody that Manchin does. It's good. It's good. 
this is one of the worst shows on TV. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. It's good for everybody for Manchin to do this. Joe, nobody in the country among actual voters and real people is itching to keep that corporate tax rate low. In fact, there was a poll from, I think, a few years ago, 83% of the country wants to raise the corporate tax rate, 83%. This exact bill that's being proposed, 65% of the country supports it. But Morning Joe says it's, quote, good for everybody that Joe Manchin is doing this. It's good for nobody. It's good for nobody. You know who it's good for? It's only good for the corporations who are incredibly corrupt and have bought the politicians, and they're corrupt, and this is them doing their bidding. This isn't good for everybody. The, the corporate tax rate was 35% in 2016. Trump cut it all the way to 21%. Biden comes in and say, doesn't even say, let's go back to 35%. He says, we'll do 28 And now Manchin chips away and says 25 So, in other words, look at the game that's being played on you. That Overton window is shifting further and further right. It was 35%, and now with the reform that the Democrats want to be 25%, so it's still a cut of 10% from, from 2016. Listen, how many times do I have to describe this? How many times do I have to explain this to people? And these idiots don't get it because they're morons on, on Morning Joe. None of the West Virginia voters are like, gosh, I really wish the corporate tax rate was lower. God, I really wish Joe Manchin would split the difference between 21% and 28%. Nobody thinks that. No actual voter thinks that. The way in which West Virginia voters are more moderate is on social issues. Generally on social issues, they lean more pro-gun. You know, they lean more anti-abortion. But on economic issues, they're not right-wing. They're not. And if anything, they're more populist. They're further to the left. They like stuff like a $15 an hour minimum wage, which, by the way, you need in order to survive and live in a one-bedroom apartment in West Virginia if you're working full-time. They like stuff like the $15 minimum wage. They like stuff like the stimulus checks. CNN went and did, uh, you know, an interview with random people on the street in West Virginia, and all of them are like, I think it's great. I love these stimulus checks. They're wonderful. But there's this conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C., among the political class and among media elites. And the wisdom is, the conventional wisdom is, states want moderation and want more conservative Democrats. And that's interpreted as do more right-wing stuff economically. When, again, the only people who agree with the right-wing economic stuff, it's the corporations. It's the corporations. Actual voters don't want corporations to get a tax cut, don't want them to have this low rate. They just don't. They just don't. But, see, they can't help but cover politics just in this, in this, like, game sort of way, this behind-the-scenes, you know, we're playing, a, we're playing a game. It's a horse race kind of thing behind the scenes. And he says, it's good for everybody. It's good because Manchin gets to flex his, his conservative streak, and it's good because it gives cover to the other six or seven Democrats who secretly agree with him. That's not good for them because the voters don't like it. I mean, it's not good for anybody. But it's definitely not good for them. They think it's some sort of political genius to disagree with Biden on this from his right. Kirsten Sinema thought it was political genius to vote down the $15 minimum wage, and now she's phenomenally unpopular. 65% of Arizona voters, this poll just came out, said raise the minimum wage to 15. 
61% of them said, even if you have to get rid of the filibuster to do it, get rid of the filibuster. They're not actually representing anybody except the corporations. And Morning Joe is so stupid, they go out there and pretend like it's some sort of brilliant political move. It's not, it's not even close. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. This is the worst political analysis I've ever seen. All right, y'all, final story of the day. By the way, you're going to want to check out Crystal Kyle and Friends this week because we have Chris Ryan on, the author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, and it will be a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss that. All right, final story. Let's jump into it. Fox News is still um, continuing to trash phenomenally popular ideas, and they're going to go after Bernie Sanders here. This is hilarious. Address the uh, human infrastructure first, Charlie. <laughs> Define it. Human, human, in, human infrastructure. Yeah, no, that's that's a complete misunderstanding of the concept of infrastructure. The whole point of infrastructure is that it's concrete things that uh, that immediately have value as soon as you build them, and, and and that value lasts over a long period of time. Now, obviously, you know, Bernie Sanders raises a lot of good points about uh, the the, the uh, costs that are draining American families. Uh, but the problem is, you know, Bernie Sanders is a guy who's been around for a half century, and he hasn't done anything to fix any of it. And the worst thing you can do uh, to people who are strugg- struggling with things like student debt is to print more money and to borrow more money, because that devalues the money that they do have, and it, and it diminishes their purchasing power. So uh, Bernie Sanders may have a lot of good ideas about what the problems are. I don't think he has a good idea about what any of the solutions are. Okay. Mm, no, you don't have any idea about what good solutions are, and you just demonstrated that for everybody to see. So what he's saying is, I don't know if you understand what he's saying. His argument is free college is actually bad for students. It wouldn't help them. Okay, uh, was, is free high school bad for students? Because that's what we have in the country. It's not at the federal level, admittedly, but it's funded by the government. We have public high schools. It's the same concept. Just add four more years. That's it. Is free high school terrible? Is free middle school? Is free elementary school? Is that bad? Is that terrible? Does that devalue money? I mean, it's ridiculous the arguments that these people come up with to try to justify the status quo and justify the current state of affairs, which is about $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. Uh, the student debt, you know, you got to print more money and devalues the money and does all this. Really? Is that, is that, I don't think you have any idea what you're talking about. You sound exactly like one of the idiots who, for the longest time, has been predicting some sort of economic catastrophe in Japan because they have a lot of debt. Turns out there is no catastrophe. There is no uh, devastating economic fallout because they control their own currency. And so you absolutely can deficit spend, especially when the economy goes south. The government should be the spender of last resort. If the results, the effects of a stimulus bill during a downturn, it's empirically proven that it's positive, that that's a good thing to do in the downturn. But he makes it seem like that's not the case. Anyway, so I, I like when he says, uh, well, Bernie hasn't done any, anything to fix these things. He's like one of the only guys who has done stuff to fix these things. In fact, the number of things he's, they call him the amendment king because he got so many phenomenal amendments into otherwise unrelated bills. So he actually is a really 
um, crafty politician that ends up getting a lot of wins for his ideology. And this is in a, bo- in a body that's completely hostile to his ideology. One of the things, he got so many free clinics, by the way. That's one of, you know, his crowning achievements is he was able to slip in a lot of provisions for free clinics. I think partly he did it in Obamacare, but I think he also did it in other bills as well. So, no, this guy has had an incredibly positive effect. He, him and Mike Lee were the reason why the, the House and the Senate passed a bill ending our support of a genocide in Yemen. Now, unfortunately, Donald Trump vetoed that, which is absolutely criminal. I think that's an impeachable offense on its own. But, of course, he's done good things. He's done great things. And what they're talking about here is human infrastructure. So Bernie described it, putting in the infrastructure bill something he calls human infrastructure, which is like child care, lowering the Medicare age to 55, uh, maybe free college he put in there because that's what they're talking about. But I don't even know if that's actually in the bill. And uh, this guy goes on to define infrastructure. He's like, infrastructure is defined as concrete things that have a long-term payoff. Okay, but those things are exactly that. Childcare absolutely has long-term payoffs. Um, free college, it, there's been a number of studies proving that it has long-term payoffs, that it's more of an investment in the younger generation for the future, that that's what it is. So I wasn't even sure I was on board with the human infrastructure framing, but then when this guy defined infrastructure, I was like, oh, then it absolutely is infrastructure. But by the way, that doesn't even matter. I don't care what you call it. There's a reason why they're trying to jam as much stuff into the reconciliation bills as possible, because that's the only way anything gets passed. So, yeah, throw everything you possibly can into all the reconciliation bills, because we have a a, a totally broken Senate where you need 60 votes to get anything through, and you're not going to get 60 votes on any piece of legislation, because the Republicans are going to obstruct everything in sight, no matter how common sense or straightforward it is. So... Listen, that's the real reason why they want to jam more stuff into this reconciliation bill. But I say, okay, more power to you. Really, you should bring the filibuster back to the talking filibuster because then it'd be harder to filibuster. Or you should eliminate the filibuster. But if you're not going to eliminate the filibuster and you're going to keep reconciliation, I don't care if you call it infrastructure, human infrastructure, or grandma's ass cheeks. I don't care. Put in as much as humanly possible because that's the only way anything's going to get passed. So, yeah, go for it. I mean, imagine thinking that childcare, lowering Medicare to age 55, and free college don't have long-term payoffs, aren't concrete things with long-term payoffs. That's like, this is the most concrete stuff with the most long-term payoff. So, yet again, Fox News swinging and missing. I love it when they're too honest and they openly argue against just really, really popular ideas. All right, guys. I love you, baby. I'll talk to all you guys soon. Again, check out Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. It's going to be great with Chris Ryan. I love you. I'm out.